Praise the Lord. So good to see everyone here tonight. Amen. <laughs> I was telling everyone uh, on Tuesday, I was looking forward to tonight because it's been forever since we've been together. Amen. All right, a couple quick announcements. Uh, do remember this Saturday is our New Year's Eve service. That starts at 5 p.m. Uh, we're going to have uh, a few things going on. Uh, it will be a communion service, so uh, please be prepared for that. Uh, be thinking about that, praying about that. Uh, different people are going to be doing different things. Uh, I'm excited about what I'm hearing. I'm looking forward to it. I'm hearing from you, uh, seeing what the Lord has prepared in you through you. Amen. And we're going to have some finger foods afterwards, time of fellowship. Uh, please stay around for that. Amen. We won't be too late. I will give a sort of, of message as, as possible, uh, just kind of outlining the coming year, casting a vision, giving a uh, kind of a theme. Amen. That uh, for the most part we'll try to uh, build on in the coming year. Amen. Midwinter camp is coming up. Uh, the one we're most likely to attend is uh, this one, January 12th and 13th. That's a Thursday and a Friday in Eau Claire uh, at uh, Pentecostal Assembly Church. I just want to say P-A-W, but it's P-A. I don't know why. <clears throat> Pentecostal Assembly Church in Eau Claire. Uh, if you haven't been, folks, do yourself a favor and go. These are amazing, amazing conferences. It's only two days. Uh, if you can make the day session, all the better. Uh, it's great teaching. You will be blessed. Amen. Whatever God has in store for us there, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be absolutely awesome. Amen. Uh, with that, let's all stand. <clears throat> I seem like I'm in a hurry. I got a lot to get through tonight, so we're going to get into it. Amen. Uh, let's pray for our service. God has a will. He has a plan for this. I want His will to be accomplished, as do you. Amen. Uh, we want to see that take place here. Uh, God loves us, folks. He has the very best in store for us. Amen. And when we put our faith and our hope and our confidence in Him, we're never disappointed. Amen. Let's cry out to Him now. Let's pray for this service, that He would be loosed, that His perfect will would be accomplished here. Lord Jesus, You're an awesome God. You're an amazing, glorious King and Savior and Redeemer. Hallelujah, Jesus. We seek You right now. We seek Your face, Thou Most High God, that You would be present here, that You would minister to each and every person here within the sound of my voice, those joining us online, that Your presence would be felt wondrously and powerfully and miraculously in every place. I pray, Lord Jesus, that You would be loosed, that You would have free reign in this place, that Your will and Your will alone would be manifest here that Your words and Your words only would go forth from this pulpit, that we would receive You, that we would receive Your message, Your voice, Your words, Your will. I pray, Lord Jesus, that Your name would be glorified here, that it would be lifted up and magnified in this place. I pray, Lord Jesus, that as You are lifted up, You would indeed draw all men unto You. Hallelujah, Jesus. We seek You. We bind together as one body with one mind and with one accord, seeking the face of Almighty God, entering into Your presence, receiving of You all that You have in store for us tonight. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be also ministering unto You with our worship and with our praise and with our thanksgiving, that we would be waiting upon You tonight, 
Hallelujah, Jesus. To minister unto the Lord our God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that your great and mighty name would be glorified here tonight. Let your perfect will be accomplished. Minister to each person here tonight. Undergird them with strength. Encourage them, I pray, in the Lord their God. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 10, is where we'll find our Scripture text tonight. We're going to be talking, uh, kind of, sort of, we're going to be talking about uh, the doctrine of depravity, or more specifically, the doctrine of total depravity, and there's a reason for that. Uh, We won't be talking about that in and of itself, uh, but we're heading somewhere with that. There are some things that we need to understand tonight, and I'm going to kind of try to use tonight to do a little bit of heavy lifting, lay some groundwork in preparation for uh, Saturday's service. Amen. Uh, Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 10, says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The writer of Romans is speaking about someone very specifically. The godless. Those who are outside of a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ are exactly who he is talking about. Effectively, that means every man, woman, and child that's ever been born. There is, I cannot pronounce this name, Lionier Ministries. Ligonier Ministries, L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R Ministries, conducted a survey this year, 2022. I know I'm pronouncing it wrong. In any case, this survey asks uh, some very specific questions concerning Christian doctrines, uh, the Bible in general, etc. And they surveyed kind of uh, an overall sampling of uh, adults in the U.S., And then they also sampled uh, evangelical Christians. And they define, for purposes of this survey, they define an evangelical as the following. As asserting the Bible is the highest authority for what we believe. I think we would all agree with that. As asserting and believing it is very important for us personally to encourage non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. This is right off of their website. They understand that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of our sin. And they believe that only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. Now keep those four qualifiers in mind. At the beginning of the survey, they asserted that these things that they believe, they hold these things to be true. 
That's why they were counted as evangelicals for purposes of this survey. But their answers, their answers to a large degree contradict these things. And I'll go into specifics. One statement that they were given was, God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Agree or disagree? Now, we would disagree with that. God is immutable. I am the Lord, I change not. He doesn't learn. He knows everything already. He doesn't need to adapt to different circumstances. Circumstances, if we're going this route, adapt to Him. In any case, the overall sampling of U.S. adults, 51% agree with that statement. Evangelical Christians, 48% agree with that statement. That God learns and adapts to different circumstances. Moving on. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 56% of evangelicals agree with that. Jesus was a great teacher, but He was not God. 43% of evangelicals agree with that statement. The Bible... Like all sacred writings, contain helpful accounts of ancient myths, but is not literally true. General U.S. adult population, 53% agree with that. 26% of evangelicals agree with that statement. That the Bible is not literally true. Religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. 38% of evangelicals agree. Now, refreshingly, the next two statements, uh, sex outside of traditional marriage is a sin, 94% of evangelicals agree. That's a sin. Abortion is a sin, 91% of evangelicals agree. However, when it comes to gender identity being a matter of choice, U.S. adults, this surprised me, 42% of U.S. adults agree with that. 37% of evangelicals agree with that. The Bible's condemnation of homosexual behavior doesn't apply today. 46% of U.S. adults agree. 28% of evangelicals agree. The last one I wrote down here. Everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. U.S. adults 71% agree with that statement. Evangelicals, 65% agree with that statement. And it is that last statement that I wish to address this evening uh, before we go into other areas. There is a crisis of truth in our nation today. I think we know that already. There is a decided lack of biblical truth, biblical knowledge that people have. And either they are uh, unknowing, they are truly ignorant, they've just never heard it, or they are unwilling to accept it. In any case, this nation is largely ignorant of truth. Why is that? Well, uh, Like any situation in the real world, it's complicated. There are a lot of reasons why. 
You can't point to just one reason and address that and everything's hunky-dory. But, I will say this. If blame has to be cast, it's got to start here. We are the repositories of truth in this world today. God has entrusted you and me with truth. Biblical truth. And folks, truth is objective, it is external, and it is singular. It is objective. That means that it doesn't matter if I agree with it or not. It doesn't matter if you agree with it or not. It's still true. It's external. It doesn't matter how I feel at the moment. It doesn't matter uh, where I'm thinking or where I'm headed in life. It's always true everywhere. It's singular. That means that my truth isn't just as valid as your truth. That's true for you, but it's not true for me. It's bogus. It's ridiculous. Relativism is... It's insane. That's what it is. It's absurd. Truth is objective. It's external. It's singular. Always. The Bible is that truth. Period. I don't care if something comes against it. I don't care if something makes all kinds of sense. And it contradicts Scripture. I don't care how much sense it makes. I don't care if everyone in the world is believing that over Scripture. It's still false. And the Bible is always true. Let God be true and every man a liar. The Bible is always true. Always. I don't care what comes against it. I don't care what scientific evidence you can bring against this. I don't care what philosophical arguments you can bring against it. I don't care what experiences you've had that contradict Scripture. I don't care. You're wrong. And I'm wrong if it comes against Scripture. And we've got to know it. And we've got to live it. And we've got to preach it. Absolutely like it's true. That means we've got to be persuaded of it. We've got to believe here that it's absolutely true. I can't go out there and start talking about it when I have doubts in my mind. If I'm not persuaded, how am I going to persuade someone else? That's why I was never any good at Amway. I was never persuaded myself. Everyone is not born innocent in the eyes of God. We are all born absolutely degenerate. We are born without hope. We are born depraved. The doctrine of total depravity states exactly that. We are born into sin. And we're just not born into sin. We are born sinners all the way through. And... This is something we've got to grasp. This is something we have got to understand. We're not basically good people. I hear statements, you know, see things on YouTube. This restored my faith in humanity. You know? <laughs> well, my faith in humanity has never been... It's, it's, it's never been squashed. 
Because my faith in humanity is that it will fail. It will sin. It will rebel. That's my faith in humanity. That's my faith in my old fallen nature. There is, that is in my flesh, no good thing. When we're born into this world, we're born sinners. We're born depraved. Through and through. 100% to the core. Every single person that's born alive is capable of any amount of atrocities. Any one of us, given the right circumstances, put in the right scenario, we are capable of any kind of evil. Every one of us are like that. We're born like that. It's our nature. It's who we are. We're sinners. Before we come to God, we're sinners. And there's nothing you can do, and there's nothing I can do to change that fact. I can live I can live perfectly. I can discipline myself. I can I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be good. I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to squash this thing. I'm going to speak right. I'm going to dress right. I'm going to act right. Two problems with that. One My nature is going to pop out at some time. You can't suppress that forever. Two, I'm still the same person. I'm still a sinner. I'm still degenerate to the core. And that means this. It doesn't matter what I do. I cannot save myself. I can't be good enough. I can't improve myself enough. I can't study enough. I can't learn or grow enough. To be saved. I can't save myself. Nobody can. We need a Savior. If I tried to... Oh boy. If I tried to... I have an older laptop at home. If I tried to get that to go out and plow the back 40... laughable, right? Okay, but hear me out. What if I install some new software in it? How about now? Some AI software. Some artificial intelligence. What if I add some, some hardware to it? It still wouldn't work. There's still fundamental limitations that I'm dealing with here. I would have to rebuild it from the ground up for an entirely different purpose. I can't just tweak and and, and add to and, and try to get this thing to do that thing. It won't work. I've got to build something from the ground up. That's important to know. Okay, this doctrine, this doctrine of total depravity. That's something we don't want to talk about with people. That's something we don't want to share in our Saturday afternoon Bible study. 
Dude, you're depraved all the way through, buddy. There's no hope for you without Jesus. We want to be accepted, heard, loved. And if we start talking like this, I mean, we're trying to grow a church here, right? Let's develop seeker-friendly services, sermons, seeker-friendly gospels. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we need to be jerks about this. Ram it down people's throat. And then when they walk away, well, I'm just being persecuted for Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that either. That's stupid also. But, if we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ, He wasn't a jerk about it, but He told people straight up. This one thing you lack. Sell everything you got. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. We're going to read a scripture in a little bit where he said, told a group of people, you are of your father, the devil. That's why you want to kill me. He wasn't being a jerk. He wasn't getting revenge. Uh, You're going to do this to me? I got something for you. That wasn't it at all. He loved those people. But they needed to hear something. They needed to receive this. And we need to understand, folks, sometimes preaching the Gospel, people aren't going to want to hear it. Why? Because their hearts are degenerate. Because they love sin. They hate the law of God. Just like you used to. Just like I used to. We've got to understand that. We preach the Gospel. We teach Bible studies. We witness. We, we live it before them. But it's God that draws. It's God that convicts. It's God that changes our old hearts. It's God that leads us to a place of repentance. Grants godly sorrow. We don't do that. We can't do that. Only God can. And so when we're preaching and we're teaching, we're sharing the Gospel, a lot of people don't want to hear it for the simple reason that they're sinners. Matthew 10, 34-39 says this, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. This is a hard saying. Very hard for some of us to accept. What do you mean He didn't come to send peace on earth? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. 
He's the God of peace. Right? What is this? The sword is the gospel, folks. And it will cause contention. It will cause hatred. It will cause variance. There can be no peace between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. Don't believe it for one second, folks. When we say we're at war, sometimes we really have no idea what that war entails. The lengths the enemy is willing to go to to win. There can be no peace between the old man and the new. There can be no peace between darkness and light. They are constantly and forever at war. There is no compromise. There is no quarter asked or given. Every side desires to win. Every piece of ground is always contested. This is war. There is no neutrality here. You're on one side or you're on the other side. I'm going to wait this one out. See, No? You're involved whether you want to be or not. Alright, this doctrine of depravity. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. Romans 3.10, As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. Even Jesus testifies to this fact. Mark 10.18 says, Jesus said unto them, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. That is God. Only God is good. There are no good people. Please get that out of your minds. Why do bad things happen to good people? There are no good people. You can be nice. You can be civil. You can be law-abiding. But you're not good. There is none good but one. God can make us good. But you're not good of yourself. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. We were the children of disobedience. Jeremiah 17 and 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I'm still not seeing any Scripture that gives me a way out here. Gives me some glimmer of hope that ah, there's a little part of you that we can work with that. If we just focus on this little speck of goodness here, we can, we can nurture that and grow that and and you can do this on your own. It doesn't exist. Ephesians 2 and 3 says, Among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Children of disobedience. Children of wrath. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, 
Because they are spiritually discerned. Forget about wanting to know. You can't know. It's impossible for us to understand spiritual things apart from God. Unless He reveals these things to us and illuminates our minds, we cannot know the things of God. We've got to grasp this. We need a good understanding of our status before God before He he enters the scene with His miraculous salvation. And I promise you, the closer you get to understanding this concept, that before Christ I was utterly and completely depraved, without hope. Because once I understand that, the miracle of salvation is all the sweeter. It's all the more miraculous. I wasn't just basically good. That just needed some help going the right direction. That's not it at all. I needed a Savior. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, forget about wanting to. I can't. It is impossible for me to be subject to the law of God unless He first works that out in me. We're born sinners. We're born in bondage to sin and utterly incapable of doing anything about it. We're born utterly, thoroughly, fundamentally depraved through and through. And when the Gospel comes to people and they're confronted with that fact, there is oftentimes a violent reaction. We just read it. The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. When I'm confronted with the fact that my deeds are evil, I'm going to be judged one day because of them. You know, before, before Jesus shines that great big bright spotlight on me, I'm very happy to dwell in the muck, in the mire, in the dark along with all the rest of the cockroaches and grub worms. You ever go camping? You ever been out for a walk in the woods and you, you kick over an old rotted log? It's a little bit gross. All kinds of ecosystem underneath there. Scurrying, trying to find the dark again. Trying to find decay and, and damp. Folks, that was me before Jesus signed, before He kicked over that log I was hiding under. That was me. I was very comfortable in that decay and muck. Very happy to stay there. There are very violent reactions sometimes when people are confronted with that truth. They don't always receive it very well. We pray that they do. We pray that they come to a knowledge of truth and they respond to the Gospel. That's always our hope. That's always the hope of Jesus. But they don't always do that, do they? They will run. They will excuse themselves. They will find reasons. They'll do anything and everything but submit. 
And this may be a little controversial, but religion can be one of those places that people run to hide. Some would say, well, they're on a journey. Maybe. But another possibility is that's the final hiding place of fallen humanity. That's the final blasphemy. The final apostasy. Where I try to work this out on my own. Every religion in the world, folks, they've got one thing in common. Except biblical Christianity. They've got one thing in common. And that's some kind of salvation by works. You do the initiation. You do the fasting. You do this. You do that. You read this. You study that. Go to this on this pilgrimage. Whatever it might be. And you attain a higher consciousness, a higher status. Christianity is unique in many ways, but in this one way in particular. Christianity doesn't hide the fact that we need a Savior. Christianity is the only religion, the only doctrine, the only worldview, whatever you want to call it. It states, I cannot do this on my own. I need a Savior. And that's the truth, folks. Whether people receive that or not, that's another thing. So that's where the hate comes from. The fight, the struggle, this war that we're in. This idea that people need a Savior. They can't do it themselves. John 7 and 7, Jesus is talking about this. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth. Why? Because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. There it is right there, folks. There it is. When you tell the world, you're not okay. You can be, but you're not. You need a Savior. Your deeds are evil. That generates hatred from this world. John 15, 18-25, he speaks more of this. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Again, there's no compromise here, folks. This war is one side or the other. Either you love the world and hate God, or you love God and you hate the world. You can't have it both ways. You're not going to have it both ways. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. There's that light we're talking about. He shines the light of truth into people's lives. But now they have no cloak for their sin. They can't hide it anymore. It's revealed to them. 
He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus spent His entire ministry, folks, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, feeding the hungry, forgiving the sins of the sinner, doing good, helping, ministering. Why would people hate Him? Why would they hate that? It's irrational. But people hate Jesus. They hate Him because their deeds are evil. John 8, 31-44, Jesus addresses this a little more specifically. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him, If ye continue in My word, then are ye My disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth. And the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me. Because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. And said they to him, We be not born of fornication, we have one Father, even God. <laughs> Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. You have your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Throughout this conversation, Jesus leads up to this. He's a murderer. He abode not in the truth. He addresses both earlier. You're seeking to kill me. Why? And now you seek to kill me, the man that has told you the truth. And he closes it out by explaining exactly why that was. These were religious people, folks. They had the knowledge of God. They had the knowledge of the Word of God, the Law of Moses. They studied it from the earliest ages on up. 
They knew the law. But Jesus says, you're of your father, the devil. I appreciate religion as far as it goes. And I know another cliche that we have now is it's not a religion, it's a relationship. But it's more than a relationship too. Maybe a very one-sided relationship. Because folks, you have no part of this. None. This salvation experience, this covenant relationship, there's no step of this process that I have anything to do with it. Well, yeah, you got it. You got to say yes. You got it. Free moral agency. Yeah, that's true. But see, here's the thing if it weren't for what Jesus already did, my saying yes to God would be irrelevant. Right? If Jesus didn't die for me, I could say yes, no, boo, hoo, whatever. It wouldn't matter. I'm still in my sin. But Jesus did die for me. And He has made that available to me. So now when I do say yes, and by the way, I can only say yes because He places that desire in me, it is of will... It is of God both to will and to do of His good pleasure. He gives me the desire. He gives me the ability to serve Him. None of that comes from here. Because there's nothing good in here. Please understand that. There's nothing good in here. This is God all the way through. This is His mercy and His compassion His grace all the way through. The salvation experience is all God. I can't take credit for any of it. A little resistance there, not too bad. <clears throat> we'll keep going. So what did Jesus do for us? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Verse 1 of the same chapter says, You hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. How effectual are the works of a dead man? What can a dead man do to... If I throw a corpse into a burning fire, what's he going to do? That might be a little bit morbid. Forgive that. Just go with me here. Can he get out of the fire? Can he feel it? There, there's no capacity to do anything there. 
We're dead in trespasses and sins. We have no capacity to do anything. We were utterly without, uh, without hope. And yet Jesus came and saved us. He rescued us. He delivered us. He did that. We didn't. The Gospel of Jesus Christ is the most wonderful, powerful message the world has ever heard. And yet it is the most hated, reviled, despised, mocked, and ridiculed message ever to be spoken. Again, why? Why wouldn't someone want a better life? Why wouldn't someone want to be delivered from sin, from bondage, from addictions? Why wouldn't anyone want that? Because they're very comfortable living in the muck and the decay. They're very happy wallowing in their sin. They would rather be addicted to anything and everything than submit themselves to a holy and righteous God. I can do all the right things, say all the right things, dress perfectly, and still not make it to heaven. I can't save myself because of who I am. Because of who I am, it is impossible for me to do anything about that. Because I'm totally depraved, I cannot act my way out of it, do my way out of it, fake it till I make it. There's nothing I can do to get to a place where I'm now saved. I've done enough. I need someone to transform me. I need someone to change my very nature from the ground up. To give me a heart transplant. Remake me from a child of wrath and disobedience into a child of God. That's the only hope we have, folks. Is if Jesus Christ changes us transforms us. No sinner is going to be going to heaven. None. And this idea that I'm a sinner saved by grace, false. You're a sinner or you're a saint. You're a child of wrath or you're a child of God. There's no, I'm on a journey. I know what people mean when they say that, okay? But I'm telling us here, there's no journey. You're one or the other. You're saved or you're not saved. You're a sinner or you're a saint. That's it. I need to be changed. I need to be transformed, reworked from the very ground up. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That means you and me. We are not who we used to be. Jesus miraculously, supernaturally transforms the very nature of who we are. The old nature is still there. It's set aside. But there's a new nature in us. A new nature. That's who we need to, to nurture and strengthen and grow. Paul said this needs to be crucified. 
Get rid of it. Subject it daily to the Spirit of Christ. Have nothing to do with it. 1 Corinthians 15 and 57. There are three, per, there are three uh, places in the New Testament where you see this, this phrase, thanks be to God. They're all in the, written to the church of, of Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15.57 says, But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Now thanks be to God which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the Savior, savor of His knowledge by us in every place. And I'm going to do a, a rather lengthy conclusion here uh, with this. We were sinners. If you're saved, you were a sinner. Once you experience New Testament salvation, you're not a sinner anymore. That total depravity, that total depravity is set aside and now you have a choice. Because you have another nature inside of you now. The Spirit of God. And every day, we're going to be fighting. Those two natures are going to be warring, one against the other. The flesh against the Spirit. The Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary the one to the other. You feed the Spirit. You starve the flesh. You do those things that please God. You submit yourself to God. He always causes us to triumph. The struggle is real, folks. It is. We are in a battle. We are at war. There's a war out here, and there's a war in here. But thanks be to God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verses 9-17. through 17, We will be closing with this. A powerful testimony to what can happen if we would simply trust in the Lord our God. We trusted Him for salvation. We had to. There was nothing you could do about it. There was nothing I could do about it. We had to trust Him for salvation. But if we can trust Him with something so all-encompassing and so completely important as that, can't I trust Him with my finances? Can't I trust Him with my physical health? Can't I trust Him with everything? Second Chronicles chapter 20, and starting with verse 9, we pick up a story here uh, where... Uh, Jehoshaphat is praying to the Lord. He is crying out to Him because he is overwhelmed right now. There are armies coming against him, and he's powerless to stop them. We pick it up in verse 9. If when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, 
and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now behold the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came up out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. They waited for an answer. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jehiel, the son of Mattathiah, Mattaniah, a Levite of the son of Asaph, came, a, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Jeruel. We shall not need, ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. Amen and amen. Whatever part of the battle, whatever part of the front we find ourselves in, we've got to understand this. God gives us victory. We trusted Him for salvation. We trusted Him to transform us from a children of wrath to a child of the Lord. We trusted Him with our salvation, our full salvation. We put our hope in Him for eternity. Whatever comes our way, church, we can trust Him for the victory. We can trust Him. It's God that created us. It's God that purchased us back from the enemy. It's God that gives us conviction of sin. Godly sorrow which leads us to repentance. It's God that changes our very nature and creates in us a new creature. It's God that gives us the ability and the desire to serve Him. It's God that gives us an understanding of His Word. Every step of this process is God. It's all God. Thanks be to God. Not you, not me, but God. God doesn't want us to merely change our actions. He wants to change who we are. There's a big difference there. He wants us to become like He is. And when this happens, we're going to naturally do those things that please Him. Our prayers... Rather than wondering, rather than struggling, is this the will of God? Am I praying amiss? Am I praying of my own lusts? You will naturally pray the will of God if you are Christ-like. You will just, your prayers will naturally conform to His will. Our desires will naturally be to serve and to please Him. We don't have to struggle. Oh, was that really God? Oh, I don't think He wants me to talk to Him today. We will just naturally do those things that please God. Our focus will naturally be to promote Jesus Christ and to advance His kingdom. We won't have to struggle with it. We won't have to worry about it. 
That's who we are now. That's what we do. That's what we do because that's who we are. Amen. God doesn't want us to just change what we're doing. He wants to change who we're becoming. Who we become. Who we are in Him. That's God's plan. That's God's purpose for each and every one of us. Can God do that? I believe He can. If we'll let Him. If we'll submit ourselves to the process. That process is going to be different for every person. But there will be a process. Some kind. Some parts of it you're really going to love. Some you're really going to hate. But the process is necessary. All of it. For us to become like He is. For us to, to consistently and naturally demonstrate His character to this world. Demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit so that others can come and taste and see that the Lord, He is good. Amen. So this year, we're going to be focusing less on doing and more on